0: In the previous episode, we discussed the fact that there are multiple epistemic models in Christianity. And we asked the question of why that is, and how do we make sense of of this difference in um, perspective. Um, But uh, in order to answer that question, we need to take a look at history, especially given that it hasn't always been this way. for the past five hundred years or so, since, since the Reformation, we've seen a lot more variation in Christian theology. Prior to that, it could it could almost be said that for the past for about a thousand years before the Reformation, um, there was one epistemic model for most of Christianity. Um, but to understand why that is, there is also a history that. Is responsible for for that as well so it goes even further back but over this past 1000 years um the epistemology can be as understood as multiple truth sources in fact probably uh, almost all the truth sources that we mentioned in the previous lecture the you know whether it's bible tradition philosophy and so on all those different things had a part to play in the development of christian theology but the final Arbiter, that Supreme Court, the, the final decider was the church. Uh, it's important, however, to understand that by church, it's, it, we mean something different than we, they, they meant something different back then than, they do to, than we usually do today. Uh, it's not the whole community of believers, it's usually the magisterium, which is basically the leaders of the church, whether it's Pope, cardinals, theologians, people that um, were instructed in, in theology and so on, so uh, for, for the majority of this time, the church decided, ultimately decided after all the debates, after all the um, disagreements, the church would eventually determine what the correct theology was and, uh, and that was it. So the, epistemolo- the epistemology for much of Christian history had its root in the authority of the church okay um so to to kind of get a feel for what that is we need to go over a bit of history but we don't have time right now to get into details so i'm just going to quickly cover some things and then come back to it come back to some of it later in future episodes um, so the first element to understand about christian history is that it's christianity developed um, within the context of the roman empire <clears throat> now empires were something of an interesting phenomenon at this time in history because um, you have to think about the the complications of running an empire at this at this point in time in history so um, if you took a look at a, a map of the the area that the Roman Empire covered, it would be over a thousand miles from one end to the other. So just think of it in terms of uh, what it would be like if say there's an insurrection on one side of the empire and uh, the military needs reinforcements and you're trying to send help from the other side of the empire, it would take weeks to get across and and to provide the need of help. it, is, it, it isn't a simple thing to run that large of an empire. Now, over the past several centuries, um, empires start to form to a degree that they were not able to form before, at least in this, in this part of the, the world. And you have other empires like Babylon, Persia, and Greece, and they get, with each succeeding empire, they get bigger and bigger. Now, each empire only lasts about one or two centuries, and then it's it's succeeded by the next one. But by the time Rome comes around, they actually last quite a while, they they last five, 600 years, and they cover an immense uh, area. And so I can't get into too many details on this, but it it is useful to think about how difficult it would be to run an empire like this, because you got to finance it, you got to find a way to tax people, but the minute you tax the people that you've conquered, uh, you, present, you create dissentment, and you know you you risk people revolting. But in order to prevent them from revolting, you got to make sure that they're not able to to develop their military, to to form alliances with their neighbors, um, and you also got to provide incentives. So there has to be some kind of benefit of being part of the empire. Um, so one of the benefits, for example, was stability. You didn't have to worry about you know, your neighbors constantly coming over and trying to take your stuff and things like that. So so there, there's a complex, um, pho- you know, this phenomenon of, of an empire is a complex, um, there's a complex interaction of factors that have a lot to do with, with how things turn out, and it affects how the Christian church turned out. I uh, know another thing I wanted to mention about the Roman Empire is that even though Rome conquered Greece, it actually maintained and encouraged the Greek intellectual culture. And that act, that ends up having an impact on, on Christianity as well as we'll see later. So Christianity spreads within this context of the Roman empire. And in, in one sense, it is it is beneficial to Christianity to have arisen at this point in time because um, the empire makes it possible to to travel. It makes it possible to, to you know, go from one area to another and to spread the message of the gospel. Uh, But it also creates challenges as well. So uh, at first Christianity spreads mostly through through the lower classes of society. It has to spend time uh, as an underground movement to some degree because there's there's periods of time when it's uh, persecuted or it's it's an illegal religion for a while. But after a while, about 300, 300 years into the modern era, um, with, with Constantine, Constantine decides to convert, and then over time the, the empire uh, becomes converted as well in a sense, not, not as we understand conversion today, but um, Christianity becomes sort of the official religion for the empire. Um, but just shortly after this happens, uh, the empire actually ends up um, not doing so well, so First, it becomes so big, the Roman Empire becomes so big that it is not able to sustain itself um, with, with the way it is organized uh, with the capital at Rome and so on. So it ends up splitting in two. So you have the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. And then about 100 years later, the the Western part of the empire ends up collapsing. It's not able to defend itself against its enemies, not able to sustain itself. Um, and as the empire collapses several other things happen because one of the advantages of having the the empire is that like we said there's there's a sort of uh, state of stability where you know you're not constantly worried about you know enemies coming in and, and having to defend yourself so uh, that kind of stability creates a, a context where um, people can follow intellectual pursuits you know where knowledge is increased where people uh, think and and come up with new new ways of doing things. So so you have civilization growing to some degree, but then when <clears throat> the Western Empire collapses, that changes. So so you have a shift now in in society and in culture where people go back to kind of a, a more superstitious um, era because they don't longer have that that privilege that they had in the past. <laughs> so. Um, one of the effects of, of the collapse of Rome is that uh, now you have what used to be one kingdom, now it ends up being split into multiple kingdoms and there isn't uh, any more the central leadership that is able to to keep these entities uh, together to some degree. So you end up having the, the church stepping in into that little leadership vacuum and the church rises in influence and it rises in political strength uh, in, in the West, and it's able to increase its influence in this way. While in the East, the, the Christian church is still subject to the emperor, and you don't see the same kind of uh, shift in the East that happens in the West. So some of these factors are present and they explain uh, some of the things we observe in the development of Christianity. And again, this, this is something that would take probably numerous lectures to go into in detail, but these factors are there and we need to keep them in mind as we, as we consider the rest of uh, what we need to discuss today. Uh, another thing that happened, I'm just ma- mentioning this in passing, but just as the, the Roman Empire split uh, about 500 years after Christ, um there was a split in the church as well 500 years later it's called the great schism and that's where you have the the break breaking apart of the church into the catholic church in the west and the eastern orthodox church in the east um just another historical historical fact that does affect some of the things we're discussing but you you know i'm kind of mentioning it more in passing right now okay so then Um, After, you know, the Roman Empire collapses around 500 years after Christ, 500 years later you have the Great Schism, another 500 years later you have the Protestant Reformation. Now the Reformation itself is is extremely complicated in terms of the factors that uh, come into play and that are responsible for making the the Reformation possible. A lot of times we think about the Reformation in terms of theology. You know, Luther came up with this idea of righteousness by faith. He came up with this idea of sola scriptura, and then everything else happened. But no, there's many different political factors, economic factors, social factors, philosophical, theological issues. There's um, problems in the church that may have caused people to be unhappy with the way things are going and so on. Uh, I recommend a book by Alistair McGrath called The Reformation Thought that goes into a lot of these details and it creates a context that will will help the student of uh, theology understand exactly why some of the things happened and why the Reformation was successful even though other people have attempted to bring uh, the refunds in the past. Now, um, one of the things that happened with the Protestant Reformation that has to do with what we're discussing here is the fact that if you have an epistemology where the church is the supreme court you cannot really have a reformation because you know you would come to the church and say here's here are my concerns here's what i'm appealing to here's here are the problems that i think need to be changed and the church will say okay we'll take those into consideration they'll have their their discussion and then they'll make a decision and probably continue to do things the way they have been doing them in the past because they're they are their own authority so when the reformation happened, it became evident that to, to bring about a change, you need to change the, also change the epistemic center of Christianity, at least in the form that it was available at that point in history. Uh, so in order to make this happen, a new epistemology was needed. So the, the the new final arbiter or the new Supreme Court for Christian theology became the scripture. And that's, that's where the slogan Sola Scriptura um, Become became popular, um, and we'll go into this a little more in, in the next session, in the in the following episode. But the sola scriptura epistemology didn't survive very long. I mean, it's still continuing today, as we know, but um, it ended up um, causing further divisions uh, after a very short period of time. So, first, one of the first reasons was the disagreements between Protestants. So, pe- people broke away from the Catholic church and they all agreed to this concept of Sola Scriptura, but they kept disagreeing on the interpretation of scripture. So you end up with the Lutherans, the reformed um, mm-hmm. Protestants, the Anglicans, and then you have the radical reformation, which is the Anabaptists, and we'll come back to this group as well a little bit later and many other splinter groups as well. So, um, you know, the, you introduce a new epistemology, but the minute you introduce it, it just ends up creating more and more division. But while this is happening, uh, other other things are taking place as well. So you have the Enlightenment, and then you have the Scientific Revolution. We'll be back to that in a second. But um, the Enlightenment, uh, you could say it was <clears throat> it was made possible by the Reformation, because now that the Protestant Reformation happened, you have sections of Europe that are no longer under the control of the Catholic Church. So people are able to to take intellectual routes that they were not allowed to to pursue in the past. Um, But as people start going into philosophical um, areas that maybe have not been pursued in the past, um, certain key things, key elements change that affects the rest of of human history to a large degree. So if you look at how it, philosophy used to be done in the past um, from the time of Plato all the way till the 1500s uh, philosophers viewed uh, God as the cent- center or the centerpiece of what knowledge is built on so basically the idea was that um, the fact that we're conscious and the fact that we can think the fact that we can understand and reason and you know, do mathematics and, and all these other things means that there's a creator and that this creator has made knowledge possible and has imprinted that knowledge into the human soul and the human soul is able to, to reason and all these things. So God was sort of the centerpiece of, of the whole of humanity's understanding of how knowledge works. But after the enlightenment, the center of, of the process of knowledge changed from God to, to the self because for example, Descartes, he, he started thinking, well, um, how do I really know anything? Um, how do I know that things are actually out there? They exist. What if I'm just uh, this brain in 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 some kind of uh, container, and somebody's basically creating all these impulses in the brain, and there's this evil genius that is giving me memories and giving me ideas and. It's not really there. Some, Somebody's just messing with it. Me. And the, the thing that Descartes came to was that if there's anything that we can know, it's the fact that we exist. Because if we're thinking about it, that means we have to exist. Otherwise, we wouldn't be thinking about it. Everything else, we're not so sure about. But anyway, th- these are some uh, theological uh, ideas, I mean, philosophical ideas that we don't have time to get into. But But it began a shift in how people thought about philosophy. Uh, Kant came around and he tried to argue that um, we don't really have access to metaphysics. So metaphysics, basically, if you think about the physical world, and then you say, well, what is there besides the physical? What is there outside of the universe, outside of physical matter and so on? And, and Kant said, well, we don't have a way to know that because the way we know anything is that our minds um, look at the physical reality that we understand with our senses. and and we develop this construct and everything we know is is sort of this cooperation between our mind and the physical world and because we don't have any way to know anything about metaphysics that means we don't know anything about what's out there and so on so anyway this this line of reasoning sort of opened up a new way of thinking that wasn't available before or at least wasn't uh, popularized or people weren't free to pursue those lines of thinking and um Uh, It it changed the way people thought even about theology as a result. And um, this also opened up the way for the scientific revolution. Now, the scientific revolution, uh, the way to think of it is the attempt to study the world as a purely physical phenomenon. So essentially dismiss the supernatural, dismiss gods, dismiss any spirits or anything uh, that cannot be tested and basically just study the world as if everything that exists is natural. Um, And it turns out that when you do try to study the world that way, eventually you you find natural solutions for a lot of the problems that people used to think had supernatural explanations. So this began a a, a realm of study uh, that science had been done for most of human history prior to that, but um, things actually changed in the sense that, our understanding of the natural world began to to increase quite a bit once this new approach to, to science was taken up now all this affected theology as well and it affected people's understanding of the bible um, when it comes to to studying scripture directly people decided that they could s- apply the same principles they use the scientific principles that they they were using to study history and study archaeology and study other other things about uh, the world, they could apply it to scripture as well. So they began to to treat scripture as any common book and to study the various elements the way they would study any other historical claims. And eventually, people came to to question much of what was in the, in scripture. So. You have the protestant reformation you have an epistemic shift from the church to the scripture but soon after within a matter of decades but continuing over the next century or two people stop trusting scripture more and more and looking for alternatives or or maybe just give, even giving up on on christianity altogether so in this context uh, people start feeling the need for another shift in epistemology so instead of um, instead of relying on the church or on on scripture or or on any other sort of imposed authority, uh, people look for ways to to do theology based on things like reason and human experience and morality or science. So you have the rise of what is known as liberal Christianity. Um, The the essence of, of liberal Christianity is that all of us have some sense, or at least that's a presupposition. All of us have the sense that uh, there's something out there that's greater than ourselves and we, we need and depend on something greater than ourselves. And that is sort of the thing that we can hold on to and build our theology from there. Um, so liberal Christianity, as it begins to be developed and thought through, uh, it, it begins to, to set aside all the superstitions and rituals and miracles and things like that from, from you know christian thought and emphasizes other things like ethics and morality the teachings of jesus that have to do with loving one another and to being kind to our neighbors and to to be socially active and to go out there and help others <clears throat> but as as this new version of christianity is being developed so we already have the traditional version that's built on the church we have the all these different protestant groups that are being built on scripture but they disagree with each other and now we have this new version of christianity that that is considered liberal christianity and um as as this this new approach is is spreading um another hundred years or so pass and people start to recognize that there's problems with this as well uh because now there's there's a version of Christianity that is so different than than what Christianity started with that it's almost that it's almost like why even call it Christian anymore, and then other things happen. For example, the uh, the, the world wars start to you know we're already in the um, 20th century now, and you have the world wars and people are looking at liberal Christianity saying you know this thing doesn't work. It's it, it has failed to prepare people to to have a sound mind uh, when it comes to this stuff. Uh, then you also, you also gotta keep in mind that h- history took a different route in Europe than it did in the Americas, because over there people were continuing to pursue their the intellectual pathway that was started f- from the Reformation, and they continued to study and think through these things. While in America, people came here to get away from persecution, they came here to, to have freedom, uh, to be you know to follow god the, the way their conscience told them to and um and they had to face a brand new world they had to survive so it was a very different setting so you see sort of a different path we taken historically um, in the new world versus the old world as well all right so now that you have uh, liberal christianity having established itself um as time passes and and, and this version of Christianity spreads far enough to cause concerns, people have sort of this reactionary um, approach to to countering liberal Christianity. So you have at least two major uh, counter reactions that that try to address this new form of Christianity. So you have fundamentalism and new orthodoxy. Now, fundamentalism basically goes to the exact opposite extreme of liberal Christianity. So they say, you know, If liberal Christianity uh, has no longer believes the Bible, no longer trusts anything in scripture or or questions most of of what is written in scripture, uh, fundamentalism goes to the other degree and says, no, scripture is 100% accurate. It's inerrant. uh, And we're just going to take it as is. We're going to reject science. We're going to reject any arguments like higher criticism, any arguments that that go against the Bible, we're just gonna ignore them and and reject them. And we're just gonna take the Bible um, as fact and and go from there. Uh, Now, I call this approach presuppositional because um, when you take something as fact and refuse to allow any kind of question of, of that one belief, that one beginning point in your belief system, then there's no way to differentiate, your, differentiate yourself from other religions that do the same thing. So if, say, the, the Islamic world takes the Quran as fact and refuses to, to question that beginning presupposition, then it is impossible to say which religion is correct. You just have to choose one and go with it. So that that's that's the effect of having a presuppositional approach to theology. Um, so anyway, that's fundamentalism, and that's that's kind of the route they took. Uh, another approach was new Orthodoxy. and new Orthodoxy took kind of more of a middle ground. Uh, they They continued to rely on much of the foundation established by by liberal Christianity. They continued to take um, the the modern scientific um, philosophical um, developments that had occurred over the past couple of centuries. They continue to take them, take them seriously but they did feel that they, need, <clears throat> they needed to be a, more of a connection with the past and with Orthodox Christianity. So the approach that New, New Orthodoxy took is to say, no, scripture and tradition were meaningful. They did have something to, to contribute. They were inspired. They did, they did come from a divine source, but the aim of these things wasn't to teach us <clears throat> all these facts the way people had understood scripture before, but they were specifically to point us with Christ, to point up, to point us to Christ. So in other words, uh, for example, the, the prophets in the Old Testament, they didn't know much about science. They didn't know much about the world. They could have been wrong in many ways, but the one thing they were not wrong on is that there was a coming Messiah. That's the thing that is inspired. The other stuff, we shouldn't take it as fact. Uh, we should consider take into account mo- modern knowledge and you know adapt our understanding based on the things that we discovered through science and through f- philosophical reasoning up to this point but um uh, the one thing that 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 they did get correctly is that there was going to be a common messiah that god was going to become incarnate and um you know the fact that he did come and he did live on earth and the apostles were there to see it and all that stuff that's the part that is inspired and that's the part we should be focused on So by taking this approach, by sort of uh, merging liberal Christianity with traditional Christianity, New Orthodoxy provided this sort of middle ground, middle-of-the-way approach to theology. And uh, today, uh, probably most seminaries today, that's kind of the approach the professors take, whether they admit that publicly or not, because seminaries do need to to have students apply there and, and parents to send their kids to those schools. Uh, but when you actually interact with the professors and listen to the things they teach and believe, that's, that's probably more where most people are at today, the, the new orthodox, what I would call the new orthodox epistemic model, unless they actually go further into the liberal model. So anyway, that's kind of an overview of the different perspectives. These are, these are not all the perspectives that exist in Christianity, but there are some of the more popular ones that we find today okay so if we were to to give to to list a summary we have catholicism and other groups like the orthodox church where the the church itself or the magisterium is the the final decider the the supreme court in christian theology then you have protestantism where the scripture is the supreme court even though as we're going to discuss in the next lecture it's not just the scripture by itself but you also have to take into account the early church and, and the, the writings of the church fathers. Um, and then you have liberal Christianity, which essentially just bases its roots itself in, in, in the human experience, but then takes into account science and, and reason and morality and, and all these other elements. Uh, and then you have fundamentalism, which which goes to the opposite extreme, where it's Scripture is 100% inspiring, that's all there is, and we shouldn't consult with anything else. And then you have New Orthodoxy that tries to merge liberal Christianity with traditional Christianity uh, by focusing on Christ and, and considering inspiration as being centered on Christ. Right. So those are kind of the major models that we're going to be working with. Uh, there are other models that we could mention. Like, for example, um, you could have a model like kind of like the Pentecostal model where the individual is being inspired directly by the Spirit. Uh, the problem with that model is that you, there's no way to to take that into account from an academic perspective because everybody could claim to have the Holy Spirit. So if you're going to study and do theology and say, well, the Holy Spirit is telling me to go this way and somebody says the Holy Spirit is telling me to go this way in my, in my theological reasoning, there will be no way to differentiate, there will be no way to to decide who's right and who's wrong, and who's actually being led by the Holy Spirit. So we're not going to consider that that model, even though the model is there, and there's there's billions of Christians that um, <clears throat> have kind of a Pentecostal, Pentecostal slant to, the, to their theology. Uh, there's also the what is usually categorized as the cult model, which <clears throat> relies on living prophets or modern prophets that lived within the past few decades or centuries, and again. Those models, it, 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 like the entire model, boils down to whether you could trust that individual who claimed to be a prophet. And because of that, it, it's not really something that we can uh, take seriously in an academic setting. Because uh, you know, sure, somebody could take the time to try to prove that their prophet is the, a true prophet, but other than that, uh, we're kind of stuck there. So we're not going to take those into account. And there's there's quite a few other models that we can think about. But the, the summary I have here is, is probably where the majority of Christians are today. All right, so another way to think about these different models is to look at it in terms of how they relate to scripture. So um, for those listening to the podcast, I have a picture here that is titled The Degree of Biblical Inspiration. And I have a scale that goes from zero to 100%. And then I have all these different groups kind of arranged on this scale. And I say, okay, as a, as a point of reference, atheists would be about close to zero percent so they would say the bible is pretty much useless there's no inspiration there's no god anyway so the bible is just a book written by people that have very little knowledge to begin with right now on the other extreme where you would say that the bible is close to 100 percent accurate is would be the fundamentalists who you know well they, they might acknowledge the fact that you know there's different variants in the manuscripts and things like that but other than that the bible is 100% accurate <clears throat> uh, and then you know going from 100% over to the to, to 0% you would have protestants that would be maybe somewhere like around 80% as far as the bible being accurate because i say 80% because they do um, rely uh, on they do feel that you need the guidance of the early church fathers to kind of help you understand how to interpret the scripture and then you have the catholic church which relies even more heavily on tradition and other external factors and believes that the, the Bible needs uh, an authorized interpreter to be understood correctly. And then you have the New Orthodox perspective where it's only, uh, b- the Bible is only inspired as much as it points forward to Christ. Um, <clears throat> you have the liberal perspective that's probably closer to, maybe not exactly at 0% inspiration, but somewhere around 20, 30%, because the way many liberals view the Bible, they see it as um, individuals in the past that had experience with God, genuine experiences with God, but but they interpreted those experiences the best they could, and in many cases, they were incorrect in their interpretation. Um, So the point of the scripture is more to guide us into having similar experiences with God for ourselves today, Uh, not in, in what it actually says, not in the the beliefs it actually contains but more in, in helping to guide us to have similar experiences of God so anyway that that's kind of a, a range of uh, ways that different people can relate to the Bible um, and those are kind of the main perspectives that we see in Christianity in the next video we're going to discuss um, the Sola scriptural perspective and how people have been trying to do archeology theology all this time and and, and you're never quite getting there. And we're gonna, and after that we'll discuss what could be a a viable approach to a archeology theology.